Blog Talk Radio. July 5th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and slightly out of breath, I was running around just before the show getting my cup of coffee and everything. I'm sitting here ready to go. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, You'll see all the program notes for today. I've titled this show kind of indulgently again after a song. This is the Matchbox 20 song called How Far We've Come. Maybe it was from 2007-ish. Is that right? I don't know. Um, With all the crazy news that's been out there today with CNN and North Korea with the ICBM test. And then also with the Independence Day holiday, I was thinking on sort of how bad things have gotten compared to the founders. When you look at someone like Donald Trump, who's quite a bit of a joke in terms of his grasp of the principles that made our country great compared to our founders, that's another kind of connection to the title of the show, How Far We've Come. You know, the the title actually bothers you, right? Because what is the song? The song is one of these, it's sort of like what Muse does, right? So Muse will do these hybrid romance slash political songs. So the song will be sort of half about politics and half about romance, or you could interpret it either way. And this song actually sounds more like the guy's going through some sort of a personal crisis if you're just looking at the lyrics but if you look at the video they're very clearly making it this thing about you know everything's horrible and the world is ending and say goodbye if you have someone to say goodbye to and all this and the title is how far we've come right but that doesn't seem like the right way to talk about it right when you talk about well you know how far you've come it's something positive it's towards something that's life promoting or life affirming you know how far we've descended into hell is more what these guys mean, right? They don't mean how far we've come, but anyway, go with it. That's the song title for today. And what we've got, like I said, is a range of stories. Um, I'm going to end on some positive things too, but there's a number of stories out there that just make you think, oh my God, we're at the brink of the end of the world. So how far we've come. Uh, yeah. So go to the blog, don't let it go.com. There's a number of links there. Thank you to those of you who have 
just shared stories on social media. Sometimes I just grab them from my feed or sometimes you've sent them to me. So thanks to those of you who have done that. The Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook is a good place to post some things. I go there and, and scan and figure it out. Sometimes there's a story that somebody shares with me and at the time it really grabs me. And then by the time it's time, you know, time to do a show, I end up being swept away by other things like I am sort of today. But uh, thank you to those of you. I've got Stuart and Rob had shared stories over there on the page. Welcome to everyone who's joined me live over here at blog talk radio. Got a number of people in the chat room, but no one's chatting yet. Or if you are chatting, I haven't seen anything. and I've got a malfunction here. Anybody want to say hi, just to say hi. Maybe we're in this, culture of censorship where nobody wants to be the first to speak because they're all afraid I'm going to dox them or something, right? Because I am seeing absolutely no chat. So maybe I should go in there and say something. Okay, there's hi with a little emoticon. Are we there? Okay. People are just not chatting. They're just not in a chatty mood. I don't know. Hello, hello. Post-Independence Day stupor says Robert. Well, I'm hoping that you had such a good time that you're in that stupor. I was actually working a bit yesterday. I've got various things that I'm doing and I made my first meme. A lot of people make memes. It's not a big deal, but I finally learned how to use the software required to, to make a meme. So I was all proud of myself. It's got all the wrong dimensions and I need to do a little bit more legible font or whatever, but it was a good first attempt. You can see that at the blog. I don't let it go.com if you if you zoom over there. Okay, so let's dive in. I've got this great little piece by Ilya Soman on whom I relied last week. You know, he's a law professor who writes for Volic Conspiracy. And he posted on July 4th a sort of a reprise of a post that he's done for past Independence Days. The Declaration of Independence and the Case for a Polity based on universal principles. And he emphasizes the point that what we were trying to do in terms of gaining independence was not because we had some sort of ethnic, cultural, religious, or linguistic distinctiveness as a people. In fact, as a people, our country in the United States, we were indistinguishable from the people in Britain that we were trying to you know, get away from. So the reason that we were doing it was because we believed that we possessed inalienable rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And in the name of those, because of all the oppressions and usurpations and everything that they talk about in the declaration, we decided that we have a right to declare our independence from the tyrannical regime. Um, so he was saying that what you know our country was founded upon and what our independence was declared in the name of was an idea, not because of some sort of ethnic, racial, religious, et cetera, you know, et cetera, identity, not some sort of group identity. And it actually turns out that today, international law, there's some international law called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights some gobbledygook. And they give you, according to this international covenant, a right of self-determination only if you are a people 
which is usually understood to mean groups with a distinctive common culture and ethnicity. And so Soman writes, he says, if the American Revolution was justified, then this approach is probably wrong because it wouldn't say that it was okay, permissible, according to international law, for us to declare our independence solely on the basis of an idea. The reason that I wanted to bring this up in particular as part of the theme for today, the How Far We've Come theme, is at the end, Soman makes reference to the, you know, the principles of the Declaration. He says this is a sharp contrast to the dangerous ethnic nationalism and zero-sum identity politics that have gained ground on both the left and the right in recent years. And he says, if we want to, quote, make America great again, end quote, we would do well to remember the universal principles that made it great in the first place. And, you know, of course, our founders were aware of these principles. And it wasn't like they perfectly instituted a government based on the principles at the outset. There was slavery and and other things going on, and someone talks about that. But helpfully, he talks about, you know, this idea that it's it's not that, you know, we feel that we've achieved this perfect idea on which we founded our country. He said, this is a standard against which you would measure a free society. Um, He says, what the founders meant to do was set up a standard maxim for free society, which should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. So it's the the right to pursue happiness. Now let's see here in the chat room, we've got Robert on, on the basis of an idea as a concept, as opposed to what? a percept, a feeling. Um, Yeah, I mean, it would be percepts and feelings that would make you feel like you're going to glom yourself together in a group with others on the basis of something other than, you know, a voluntary endeavor to set up a country based on the protection of individual rights. It was interesting. I have one friend on Facebook posting the other day about how, um, this friend, I think, is an anarchist and said something to the you know, I'm just paraphrasing, but it was something like, well, I don't really believe in countries, but at least these guys had the right, you know, their their, their heart was in the right place, so to speak. It, I'm really, really botching the paraphrase there. But it was something like that, you know, that they were that at least their goal was a noble goal, even if it's doomed to fail because you can never have a state that's actually going to do this. And when you look at what has happened to United States, how far we've come, so to speak, how far we've descended, um, you can see that the anarchist argument has a little bit of persuasive value to it, right? Because you say, well, here we are, we have the greatest country in history founded probably on the best foundation ever, you know, as Soman talks about in this piece, even though we did have legalized slavery at the founding, 
nonetheless, we instituted the fundamental principles in our founding documents and implemented them into the government in such a way that eventually we did eradicate slavery. So the seed to eradicate it was there. And a lot of people have talked about that, but someone mentions that there as well. Our country was founded on this beautiful principle of individual rights, the right to pursue your own happiness. And then look what has happened to it. You could get discouraged. You could say, well, maybe government is always doomed to fail. I tend to be an optimist about this and say, yes, there are a lot of things wrong. There's a lot of work to do, but this is something that you are always striving for. It's, it, you know, the, it, it doesn't make it a wrong goal because you haven't yet completely achieved it perfection 100% as you can picture in the platonic form or something. This is an ideal that we strive for. It's consistent with human nature as we know it. And, you know, as I said, when I, as I've been thinking about the anarchist arguments, that there are certain functions, certain governmental functions that I don't think can be performed well by private security organizations and stuff. It's a topic for another day. Um, But still, even someone who's an anarchist gets into this spirit and says, look, they had their heart and their minds in the right place. They were trying to found a country on this principle of individual rights that every individual has the right to pursue his own happiness. So then the question is, you look at our president, Donald Trump, And like I said, I made my first little meme. My first little meme is a little bit outdated, but I'll go ahead and give you a bit of an update or a bit of a refresher on it. It says, president of the first country in history to be founded on the principle of individual rights. Here's Donald Trump. He's, you know, our president, our country, the first in history to be founded on this principle of individual rights. And therefore, it's the first moral country in the history of the world. It's founded on this extremely moral principle that we have the right to be let alone, to act according to our own individual judgment, and therefore create the values required to sustain our lives, achieve our goals, pursue our happiness. This is a very moral um, you know, notion that we should be able to do this. That's what our country is founded on. And then the question is, What does our president, the president of this nation, the first and most moral nation in history founded on this principle, he never mentions it during his inaugural address. And I went back, you know, when I watched or listened to the inaugural address, I remember that he didn't say it, but I went back and looked just to make sure before I made my little meme. I don't want to, you know, contribute to the misinformation on the Internet, which is one of the things we're talking about today. I don't want to contribute to that. So I go and I look, and he does say the word freedom once. The word freedom is in there one time. But other than that, no. He never mentions the principle. And actually, if you listened to my show last week and you heard me talk about the pragmatists and that the good for pragmatism is to satisfy demand, to satisfy as many demands as possible if you're in a position of government or maybe you're a judge or something like that, you're going to reach that ruling, you're going to create that law, you're going to issue that executive order, whatever it is, you know, you're going to tweet that tweet. If you're Trump, you're going to satisfy as many demands as possible. If you listen to Trump's inaugural address, 
and you think of him as a pragmatist, an earnest pragmatist, who's just trying to do his best to satisfy as many demands as possible, it really makes sense when you, when you read the speech that way. There is no discussion of rights. And then, so I tweet out this thing, and some guy writes back, he says, well, no president ever does that, blah, blah, you know, no congressman, no nothing. Um, one friend of mine on Facebook made the comment that, that if Ted Cruz were president, that he'd probably talk about individual rights that like, you know, before he was even at the podium, you know, on his way up, he'd be talking about it. He, he's always talking about rights and, you know. Yes, he's mixed, and I've been disappointed with him at times, but he still seems like one of the best people, and we're going to talk about some cool stuff he did on the CNN thing today. Uh, So he would, but moreover, Barack Obama, he himself talked about pursuit of happiness. Now, he doesn't say the right to the pursuit of happiness. He said something like all individuals deserve to pursue their own, or something like that, right? So he he doesn't want to declare a right. He's he's not as unequivocal about it. And of course, his understanding of rights is polluted because he had, you know, he erects all these counterfeit rights that you have a right to a certain decent living and all this kind of stuff, right? So yes, he doesn't fully understand rights, but at least he feels he has to give some sort of mention or nod to the principle on which our country was founded, and he has to verbalize it in some way. He has to acknowledge it in his inaugural address. And he talks about our founders, that it's a founding document, that there's ideas on which the country is founded. None of this talk was in Trump's inaugural address. And you can go back and look at it. I actually didn't give you a link to that. What I gave you a link to, because I wanted to see, what did he say around the 4th of July, around Independence Day? And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, 4th of July, a couple of years ago, I became aware of this tendency of people to either speak of the holiday as the 4th of July or as Independence Day. And if you talk about it as Independence Day, it's got a lot more substance to it. Now, maybe those things aren't as important to you. When I was posting this meme, I had one friend who comes on and says, well, so what? Talk doesn't matter. Talk is all fluff or something like that. And I respond, I say, oh, including your comment here, that's all fluff too, (laughs) right? To me, if you actually understand the words that you're using and you're saying them, you are, at least, you know, if you're kind of a cogent, rational human being, you're expressing some sort of intention. It's going to be reflected in the actions that you take. It's not just meaningless fluff. So when I look and I say, okay, what is Trump tweeting about? What is he saying? What does he say in his speeches? I take that as an indication of how he's going to act. And in fact, I think he has been acting consistently with the way his inaugural address sounded, which is like this pragmatist stuff about satisfying a bunch of demands of pressure groups. Right? I think that's what it sounded like. If you read his 4th of July military appreciation event, that's what they call it, you know, his remarks at the 4th of July military appreciation event. First of all, he does talk about it as the 4th of July, and he never mentions our founding ideas or anything. He talks about military being brave and, you know, sacrifice and all this stuff, but never about the ideas on which our country was founded. 
a few words in the chat room says, when people say the fourth or happy fourth, it seems like the meaning or purpose of the celebration is left out. That's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of what surrounds this holiday seems that way. There are, you know, I'm not unique in this all over our country. I've had friends who were complaining about the, you know, the fireworks that people do. People just shoot off fireworks senselessly in the middle of the night just because they have an excuse to because, hey, it's the 4th of July and let's make a whole bunch of noise. And if you actually thought about kind of the meaning of the holiday, you would expect you know, respect the rights of your fellow human beings after a certain hour to maybe get some sleep and not be woken up by something that sounds like gunshots in the middle of the night. It would be wonderful if people would be respectful about that. But in many neighborhoods around the country, so-called patriotism will make them just be wild. And they're probably drunk when they're doing it too. They're not even fully aware when they're doing it. But I do. I'm now... Someone a few years ago, I can't remember who, otherwise I give them a hat tip. I always do this. But someone made me aware of that use of language. Do you say 4th of July? Do you say Independence Day? And finally, I went and looked at Trump's Twitter feed too, right? Because I don't want to be unfair to him. I want to do my due diligence before I criticize him for not acknowledging the principles on which our country was founded. I go to his Twitter feed. There's no mention of our country being founded on ideas. There's a clip of some music, some band playing patriotic music. And he talks about patriotism and he shows a picture of the white house all, you know, in red, white, and blue lights, at least in that tweet, he said independence day. So he started putting the independence day tag with his July 4th tag. Maybe someone around him actually made him aware of this, that he should talk about it as independence day and not just the 4th of July. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about in terms of how far we've come, how far we've descended. It's how pathetic it is to have this particular president. And that's going to continue into our discussion of the next story, because the real question that is raised by this next story, this whole CNN kerfuffle where CNN has threatened to dox somebody who made a GIF that Donald Trump tweeted and also said some racist stuff on the Internet, too. This person apparently said some vile stuff. CNN threatened to dox him. And dox, if you don't know the terminology, just means basically to expose all the documentation on, identify, release, name, address, phone number of a person, publicize it out there in a national media source. This is what's known as doxing. And CNN actually threatened to do this to this guy who had made the GIF that Donald Trump tweeted the other day. This GIF, it's a wrestling thing where uh, Donald Trump is shown kind of body slamming to the ground some guy and superimposed over the guy's face is the CNN logo. Now, what was that referring to? I mean, you have to go back. This is like a really complicated soap opera now, right? Because there is just wrong piled upon wrong piled upon wrong. And, you know, we're, we're way beyond this two wrongs don't make a right because it's just like one bad thing after another after another. So where did this start? You could say that it started with CNN deciding to keep alive the sort of phony, as far as we know, phony story 
about Trump colluding with the Russians or the Trump campaign colluding with the Russians in some nefarious way, right? Um, So then what happened? James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas has a series of videos exposing the journalists at CNN showing producers and whoever at CNN saying, yeah, this is a phony story. We really don't know of any evidence that there's a connection between the Trump campaign and the Russians, but Hey, we're putting it out there essentially. Um, So that would be the, the first wrong. I wouldn't necessarily say that what O'Keefe has done is wrong, exposing CNN. You're free to actually call in and disagree with me. I have some, and answer questions about this whole chain of events that's going on here. Uh, so if you want to call and disagree with any of the things that I'm saying about this next story, go ahead. I assume that everybody who's listening to my show agrees with me that it's really pathetic that our 45th president of the United States doesn't enunciate anything about the principle of individual rights, either in his inaugural address, his Independence Day Address 4th of July, military appreciation. You know, he appreciated the military. What more do you want, right? I, I assume you agree. Maybe you disagree. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you're like that guy. Ah, talk is fluff, you know? To me, it's not fluff. It means something. As Robert in the chat room says, look, you think in words. He says, if the words you say are sloppy, that says something about the words that you think. And it's true. And I often don't live up to what I would like to actually do, you know, in in terms of clear thinking and clear expression. A lot of times I have what I think is a really clever and awesome idea for a show and I don't fully execute it the way that I would like to, I get, you know, somewhat there, but I'll say what Soman says, right. You know, is that I have this aspiration of a show that combines all of these interesting elements and my kind of unique angle and commentary. And I come up with these ideas that I think are fun and go out there and try to execute them the best I can in the time that I have. I always want to improve, but yeah. Um, Sometimes we are not thinking in the clear concepts that we could, and there's ways that we can improve. That's a whole other topic for another day. We'd have to get an expert in here to tell us how to do it. I just keep, trying to keep my eyes open and try to think logically and, and critically check your premises, so to speak. Right. Okay. So you probably agree with me there. If you don't agree with me on all the stuff with the CNN and the James O'Keefe and Trump and everything else, call in, talk to me, tell me 760-888-5817 is the number to do that. So CNN just pushes lies out there and James O'Keefe exposes it. Once James O'Keefe exposes it, Trump is out there tweeting about it and saying, well, CNN is not just fake news. It should be called fraudulent news. And he's just tweeting and tweeting. And then I guess this guy, whoever it is who should not be named or anything else, makes the gif as part of this. You know, I mean, this is all going on. Trump is out there. You, You could say sort of virtually body slamming CNN or whatever it's the you know in the in the words that he's using in the tweets so yeah you know he puts that out there then the question is really though should Trump tweet that right and that to me is one of the real questions how much you know once James O'Keefe exposes it how much should Trump tweet about it once 
some guy on the internet makes this clever gif of, you know, Trump doing the body slam thing or whatever, you know, he's commenting on Trump's calling out CNN on his Twitter feed, right? He's, he's, you know, showing him this is essentially what this guy's doing. And maybe he's ha 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 because he's a Trump supporter. It sounds like maybe he was. Um, so Trump tweets that should he have, and I would say it's arguable that Trump should not be doing this. It's not, a dignified thing. There's some other things that Trump has done recently with Twitter that are not dignified. This calling out this woman who uh, supposedly had a bleeding facelift or whatever. Our president certainly should not be sending out humiliating tweets about bleeding facelifts. I mean, it's just below the dignity of what the office should be. I'm not sure to what extent, this is my real question. If you want to call and tell me what you think about this, to what extent should a president criticize media publicly um, and particular outlets, call out particular outlets and stuff. You might say, well, if an outlet is spreading lies, then he should at least be able to make some kind of statement. You know, CNN says this and now they've been exposed. You know, they, they said that my campaign had a connection with the Russians and we're colluding with them in a nefarious way. And, you know, James O'Keefe has shown that this is not true. And, you know, he can at least use the microphone that he has to defend himself against a false accusation. Maybe that is good. But then is it okay for him to go beyond that? If he starts going beyond that and he starts really calling out and criticizing and humiliating the media, is it different when he does it because he's president? Because potentially he has the power to do something to shut down the press. And, you know, he shouldn't have that power, of course, but today he ends up having the power. Um, there's all sorts of things that have been done to people with the wrong ideas or who say the wrong things by our government. We've seen in the past, you know, the IRS scandal where you had under Barack Obama, certain conservative groups have a hard time either, well, first of all, being audited at a higher rate and then also having slower approvals for nonprofit status and, and things like that. So, um, so there's so there's that. Sorry, I got distracted by something in there in the chat room for a second. Uh, people are talking now about thinking clearly, and now I'm going to get self-conscious and never be able to think clearly ever again. Uh, Robert is answering my question. He says, "Is it different when Trump does this because he's president?" Yes, yes, yes. And and to me, is there some sort of implicit threat of censorship when a president tweets about this. Christopher in the chat room says, if he goes beyond calling out an error, I would agree it probably starts to erode the complaints that are legitimate. Well, there's two different issues, right? One is, does he make an ass of himself? And clearly, he makes an ass of himself. Now, ironically, I saw the other day there was a headline from CNN, right? Um, and it was an opinion piece that CNN had published, and it was, you know, Trump is, it, it, what, it didn't say this, but, you know, Trump is making an ass of himself on the world stage that everybody doesn't take him seriously anymore. And so there is that, and we can criticize a president, but at what point does he not just kind of make an ass of himself or descend below the dignity of an office that he's holding, 
but does he implicitly sort of threaten censorship or some sort of negative repercussions against the press and therefore create a chilling effect as they talk about in First Amendment jurisprudence? Is there a chilling effect to those tweets? And I would say that, I mean, for me, I would say, yeah, he probably went beyond what he should have done when he was tweeting about CNN and all that information that was exposed due to James O'Keefe and, and the Project Veritas. So there's there's the wrong there. So here, you know, is CNN, and then CNN is trying, I guess, to defend itself or whatever. And one journalist, this Kaczynski guy, I, I think he's done some doxing before this guy, he finds the guy who made this gif as if, you know, Trump retweeted this gif. It's not like the guy made the gif for Trump, right? Um, this poor guy, you know, he just puts this gif out there. He thinks it's funny. And then Trump tweets it out there in an arguably inappropriate way. But CNN decides, okay, they're going to go after this guy. And in fact, what they did, they, they first contacted him. And this is the timeline. The timeline is extremely important because the timeline has to do with um, in what context this guy who made the GIF, in what context did he apologize? In what context did he take down a lot of his offensive content and all that kind of stuff? As I understand the timeline, and, and you can read about it in the article that I posted, I posted this article, it's from um, the Daily Caller. And they say that first, CNN found out who the guy was, I guess through Reddit or something. They contacted him, but before any conversation took place between CNN and the guy, the guy issued an apology, some sort of public apology, and he took down everything and blah, blah, blah. Then CNN had some interview with the guy or whatever, and then they posted their articles like, Triumph, we found the guy, and he apologized, and we're so awesome, we're not going to publish his identity. Uh, what I actually should do is I should read you the exact language that um, CNN issued out there. Let me see if I can – what's the fastest way for me to find that language? Oh, I just did a funny thing on my computer and made all my windows do that disperse thing. Okay, let me – let me zoom over. Let me zoom over to my Twitter. Twitter is still a buzz with all this, by the way. It's pretty, pretty crazy out there. Um, yeah, I'll find my tweet someday. Where's my media? Oh, here it is. Beautiful. I love how social media can be a file folder for you. Okay, so CNN, they say, this is from the article that CNN itself published saying, look, we found this guy. Uh, as as Dave Rubin put it, CNN actually made news. They actually broke some news themselves. Why? Because they did this horrible thing. This is what the guy writes. CNN is not publishing Han blah, 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 Solo's name. Uh, I guess it's like Han a whole solo's name. Why? Because he is a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology, showed his remorse by saying he has taken down all his offending posts, and because he said he is not going to repeat this ugly behavior on social media again. In addition, 
He said his statement could serve as an example to others not to do the same. Next paragraph. Actually, it's a one-sentence paragraph, the next paragraph. CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. Okay, so they say, we're not going to publish his name. Why? Because he did all these things that we approve of, and we reserve the right to go ahead and publish it should any of that change. I ask you here in the chat room, would you take that as a threat to publish his name if they do something, if he does something that they don't like? Most reasonable readers who read this article looked at this and said, yeah, this is a threat to publish his identifying information if he goes out there again on social media saying stuff that CNN doesn't like. Yes. Um, and I think most reasonable people saw that as a threat right away. Um, and in fact, I've got, you know, the article, like I said, lists all of these people, all of whom said this is horrific and we can't believe that he did it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let me read you from this Daily Caller article. There's a statement from CNN trying to defend itself and say, oh, no, 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 we weren't threatening. We weren't threatening, not at all. So CNN decided not to publish the name of the Reddit user out of concern for his safety. Any assertion that the network blackmailed him or coerced him is false. The user, who is an adult male, not a 15-year-old boy, that was another thing that was going around the Internet this morning, that, oh, he's a 15-year-old boy, and how, you know, it's even worse that CNN is going after a 15-year-old boy. They're saying, well, he's not a 15-year-old boy at least, right? Not a 15-year-old boy. Uh, that He apologized and deleted his account before ever speaking with our reporters, end quote, the network said. So they're trying to say, look, um, he deleted and did all this stuff before he ever spoke to our reporters. So therefore, that means we didn't threaten, right? But as the Daily Caller piece uh, points out here, CNN left out the fact that the apology came after this guy was contacted by the CNN reporters. Even if it was before a conversation, it was after. And that makes a difference in terms of the credibility, the believability, uh, the plausibility of any, you know, denial of a threat, right? If you were contacted by CNN reporters and in that contact, that initial contact, they made clear that they knew who you were. Maybe you do all this too. You go, oh my God, I'm going to be exposed and everything else, right? Okay, again, continuing from CNN's statement, CNN never made any deal of any kind with the user. In fact, CNN included its decision to withhold the user's identity in an effort to be completely transparent that there was no deal, end quote. And, of course, the backlash is crazy. There's a whole hashtag out there called CNN blackmail. What I actually throw it under is this idea that I've been talking about, this idea of vigilante censorship that, I first was talking about in the context of the college campus kids who, you know, they can't handle this right wing Charles Murray who's coming to speak at their campus and they don't have any arguments that they're going to actually use to counter the ideas that Murray is putting forward. Instead, they'd rather shut him down by means of physical force. And this is in effect vigilante censorship. They think that 
the authorities, the government, the university, whoever, should not allow this person to speak. This person should not be allowed to speak by government. He should be censored. And if they don't see the censorship that they want, they'll go out and do it themselves vigilante style. And I think the same is true here of CNN. CNN does not think that this sort of speech, racist or the GIF or anything else, all the stuff that this guy was doing on the Internet, they think it's wrong. They think that people should not be allowed to do it. And here they are actually making a threat. And, yeah, I do believe that they made a threat to make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, Then the question is, well, is it blackmail? Is it some sort of extortion? You know, what sort of crime it is? And, yes, you could say, okay, there's there's a particular crime. But to me, you know, the, the particular type of rights violation, the threat of what sort of violation was there it, it's it's the you know the tool of force that they're using in order to achieve this objective, which is censorship. They want to shut this guy down. So yeah, we could talk about you know what the particular crime is. Uh, is it is it blackmail, extortion, etc. And it seems that it is. Ted Cruz did a little bit of research. Thank you, Ted Cruz, for doing that. He says this is troubling. He says I assume CNN's lawyers are examining the Georgia statute section 16816, theft by extortion. They say if CNN constructively obtain the gift maker's IP, it's a Georgia crime if they've threatened to disseminate, then this is the quote from the statute, quote, disseminate any information tending to subject any person to hatred, contempt, or ridicule, end quote. So, potential prosecution, I would say, for this. And, you know, how is it that they obtained that? Certainly, I would say that most reasonable people, when they look at the context of the contact between CNN and this guy, plus, of course, the text of the article that they published, their interview, you know, they're so proud of themselves that they found this guy and, They, in effect, you know, he's apologized. Now, isn't it wonderful that he's apologized and he thinks it's wrong? And so therefore we can make Donald Trump look bad and everything else, right? It's all part of this article. But there's a threat in there. Most reasonable people will read that article and see a threat. So he could be prosecuted. Now, I did have one friend who said, well, is it really worth the resources to prosecute them? Isn't it better just to expose them and ridicule the hell out of them? Maybe, maybe, but maybe... You need to, and this guy apparently has a track record. I think he's docked somebody in the past. Maybe he does need to be prosecuted. CNN probably needs to fire him if he's done this before. CNN's been having a bad track record, and that's talked about in the Daily Caller piece as well, that they had to fire Kathy Griffin as well. Now... What have we got going on here in the discussion in the chat room? Just Jean says, yes, it sounds like a threat to me. Robert says the CNN response is horrid. Of course, they're denying their thinly veiled threat. (laughs) Robert asks, if they wanted to threaten the guy, what would they have said? Yeah, I don't know what they would have said any different from what they did. (laughs) John says, I am reasonable. I think it was a threat. Yes. And and I, I told you exactly what they did say. James also thinks. So James is my attorney there. By the way, next week, this time, I will be interviewing James Valiant, 
who is sitting here in the chat room, thanks for joining, James, about his book, Creating Christ. I am finally going to discuss this with him before I go on a much-needed vacation. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So that is next Wednesday. I believe that's the 13th. Is that? No. Five, no. That is the 12th. That is the 12th, right? If we're on the 5th today, it's the 12th. John Kenny says, Stalin used to say, we may forgive a person, but then he must be destroyed. I, um, oh my gosh. Yeah, oh, Chris is excited in, about the Valiant interview. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, we could argue how far we've come is in part because of Christianity and all the problems that it's wrought. And then when you talk about what the origin of Christianity actually is, as exposed in the book, it's, pr- it's pretty horrific. And then it brings you back to, do you ever trust government? And on and on and on. Um, okay, so so I'm going through all the different wrongs that are piled one on another in this CNN story, right? One on top of the other, on top of the other. So first we have CNN going out there, actually publicizing fraudulent news about Donald Trump's supposed nefarious connections with Russia during his campaign. So that's them. That's a wrong. They were exposed. Arguably, Trump then tweeting some of the stuff that he did was wrong. But again, feel free to call in and disagree with me about that. And we could talk about, you know, what is the role of the president? I know a lot of people, actually, Tammy Bruce, I'd have to go look and and see. Um, She tends to defend the type of tweeting that Trump is doing. And, you know, a lot of people are very much, I would say, very pragmatically focusing on the effects. They're saying, look, the media is doing horrible things. The media is spreading lies. They need to be shut down. And look how effectively Trump is shutting them down and putting them in a tailspin and doing all of this stuff, right? Um. But you can't look at things pragmatically, right? We have to look at, in a proper society, what is the right thing for a president to be doing with his Twitter account in regards to the media? And I would say, no, he, that was a wrong, right? So we've got the wrong of CNN. We've got the wrong of then Trump tweeting about CNN, the way, you know, the, the extent to which he did it in any event. He could at least you know, defend himself against a falsehood. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm think I'm okay with that. But then, you know, going beyond and tweeting all this abusive stuff about the media. And I I just don't think that that's something the president should be doing. And you could say, you know, with the SmackDown gif that is there some sort of incitement to censorship in some way of CNN? I, you know, it, it, there's there's some line that he did cross there, I think. Where exactly he crossed the line, we could debate, but I think he's gone beyond. So he's he's got it wrong there. So then CNN is doing this wrong because they're going after the GIF guy. I don't think what the GIF guy did was wrong, by the way. Some private citizen out there wants to do a whole, you know, wrestling meme smackdown of course you know should trump even be hanging out at the wrestling arena and stuff we could you know talk about that another day as well nihilism with respect to the office of the president is a theme i used to do under obama all the time we can certainly extend it to trump but i don't think the gif was wrong right i don't think the gif was wrong that was not a wrong but what was wrong is 
CNN going after this guy and threatening to expose him. But it doesn't stop there. There's one more thing that I think is wrong on top of this. Yes, I think CNN is bad. It's terrible that, first of all, one of their journalists threatens to dox some guy in an article. And then it's terrible that they double down and defend this guy, right? So CNN is clearly wrong. But then there's one of these anonymous hacker people out there on the Internet called 8chan. I'm not into this culture very much, but somebody informed me, and I went out and found on Reddit. I put you the little link. It's been removed now. The substance of the article has been removed, but you can see the title of it and the skeleton of it. 8chan just doxed every CNN host. Apparently, somebody hacked in found the identities with the names and addresses and all this stuff of the CNN hosts and decided, well, hey, you know, you think it's okay to threaten this guy with doxing? We're just going to dox you. Another wrong on top of it as well. As much as you, you know, you could talk about it. You'd say, well, how would you like it? And we could do a little golden rule back and forth. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't dox the CNN host, not even that guy. You might prosecute him, you know, again, if you decide it's worth the, time and the resources and stuff, but I, would, I wouldn't dox. So how many wrongs do we have? We have CNN originally, then we have Trump, then we have CNN, and then we have this. We've got four all on top of each other. Do four wrongs make a right? I would say no. Four wrongs mean essentially that our public discourse is in a horrible state and Whenever anybody on either side of any argument is out there saying something that you don't like, you're going to start worrying what the other person is going to do because we're beyond the state where we just use rational discourse as as a means of exchanging ideas. Maybe because of, you know, the sort of thing that that friend of mine posted on Facebook, oh, talk, you know, it's all fluff. We don't want talk. We want action. (laughs) And what are you going to base your action, thought and words. And so therefore, I think talk is important. And clearly, we have lost the habit of using rational discourse as a way to deal with one another in our culture. And this just shows it. So 8chan, you think you're so cool. You don't dox them. You could talk about how bad it would be if you dox them. Right? And you could talk about the principles of freedom of expression and the chilling effect and how even though you are just a private party, you're not the government, and so therefore it's not censorship, you are creating a culture of censorship. And I've linked to my old show where I first was talking about that, that we should not, as participants in public discourse in our society, we should not perpetuate a culture of censorship. We shouldn't try to, you know, go straight to instead of, you know, dealing with ideas with somebody, humiliate them. Now, mind you, we're going to go ahead and humiliate people who are resorting to initiation of force, right? We're going to expose them as the intellectual bankrupts that they are when their only answer to either a wrong argument or something that they do is, is, you know, to immediately come back and say, oh, you know, we've got a threat. We're going to threaten you because we don't like what you say. That just shows that you have absolutely no argument. You have no ability to defend yourself intellectually and that you therefore think you have to resort to force. Go ahead and ridicule those people. But in general, the idea that 
people immediately go to ridicule. So, for example, when I innocently put out there, I think it was fairly innocent, I put out there that I wouldn't want to shake Jimmy Carter's hand. Everybody immediately comes in there and starts calling me the most horrible names as opposed to asking me, well, what do you think that he did was so bad? And, you know, uh, I think he's good because of X. Some people did that, but too many people will just come in there and insult you. And like I said, I even got a threat. It wasn't a threat against my person. The threat was to swipe my luggage, but I, but I got a threat and it's ridiculous. You might say, okay, this is, this is how far we've come. Where is our public discourse? It's in a really sorry state. And what do we do? We call out the people who do it. We try to promote the idea of teaching critical thinking in schools. I have sometimes in some of the things I've done for shows or on my blog, I have analyzed, for example, Barack Obama's speeches and pointed out all the different appeals to authority that are in there. And occasionally I'll do the same thing. I'll see a New York Times headline. There was a New York Times headline the other day about how Republican governors agree that the new bill that's going to repeal Obamacare is horrible or something. And then the Republican, I mean, first of all, it's just a blatant appeal to authority, right? You're supposed to think that the House Republican bill is bad simply because there are Republican governors who don't like it. So that's fallacious enough. And then, of course, what do they choose as a, quote, Republican governor? They have Kasich, and Kasich is just a sorry example of a Republican governor because he himself was the eager and early adopter of the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. So, it, And they have a picture of him, you know, and you're supposed to take him as the Republican who disagrees with the Republican legislation, and so therefore you should disagree with it too. Um, so you just point that stuff out. You just point out where people are refusing to make arguments, where they're committing logical fallacies. And of course, yourself, if you try to exhibit a higher level of discussion and discourse, and uh, you know, when you're out there on social media or other places, I think I have a fairly high threshold before I lose patience with people and stuff. I do have this weird thing that keeps coming up with etiquette. So if I express an emotion either for or against or sadness about something, to me, if if I say I'm, you know, and then you sometimes you can add in Facebook, you can add the actual emotion in your little header, you know, they like add a little emoticon with the, you know, I'm feeling sad about whatever or you're horrified about this or whatever it is. To me, it, if you know me on social media and you see that I say, oh, I'm so sad about X. That is not the time to come in and say, oh, Amy, but you're completely wrong in your thinking, your underlying thinking that makes you sad about X. And let me tell you why this thing that you really value that's being attacked, that's making you sad. Let me tell you why you shouldn't value that thing in the first place. <laughs> Don't argue with me. Now, when people do, and they, they just do this all the time, right? They feel like, you know, I don't know if they don't say something that implicitly I think that they agree with me. I've got now, like, I don't know, was it 700 friends on Facebook or something? Um, I don't have a whole ton of friends, but I have some. But, you know, all 700 people do not have to tell me whether they agree or disagree with some particular thing that I express out there. So I think, you know, you don't have to do this. So there is sort of a politeness 
when somebody says, oh, I'm really sad about X because this is like one of my values being threatened or attacked or um, somebody, you know, who I think is good disappoints me in this one way or whatever it is, right? Don't go in there and like attack their values. I just think that's there's a rudeness thing about that. Even when people do that, I'll come back and I'll say, hey, can you not do it in this thread? This is where I'm expressing sadness about this or whatever. Even when I ask, some people will come back and double down and just argue in the rudest, lamest way. And apparently this is the thing. I need to delve into this more. I had a friend who sent me an article. There's this psychological phenomenon of people just really out for the kill on the Internet. They're just really wanting to get into vicious arguments and attack people's values and everything else. So I have. I've unfriended some people. Other people... I guess they just let it roll off them. But I kind of feel that my group of Facebook friends is a place where I shouldn't have my values attacked in rude ways. You can disagree, certainly, and just choose not to say anything. So there's the, that's my little tangential soapbox for today. I've got Chris in the chat room going, ugh, Kasich. Yeah, just a picture of Kasich almost wants to make you vomit. And I'm not saying that in some sort of a contentless ridicule way. I've told you why. Somebody calls himself a Republican. He's an early and eager adopter of the Medicaid expansion. And he campaigns for president of the United States talking about what a great job he's done for his state fiscally, you know, with the budget and balancing it. Why? Because he eagerly took a bunch of federal dollars to boost the Medicaid program in his state and make his state look good financially. And then he's running for president. It's just ridiculous. So yeah, that's about K6. Uh, <laughs> Rob says anybody who can put, a, Oh no, I do. I think I do have a, I have a, I have too high a threshold in some cases, sometimes because I'm just completely ignorant about what someone is doing. Kasich ticks me off. Says Chris. <laughs> yeah. He does, but I think I think with good reason. There's a lot of things that he said, and I went through, and I don't want to go over it again. He's ju- he's just ridiculous. And New York Times is very funny when they decide that they're going to get you to agree that a piece of legislation is wrong simply because the Republicans think it's wrong. And we're almost here at the top of the hour. And, you know, I don't, I've still got a number of program notes. I've got North Korea. You might think North Korea is something big that we need to discuss a lot of, but it's one of these things where I just, I really don't know where we're going with it. I was going to see if I could get on very short notice, uh, the North Korea expert who I know from Twitter, Jean-Luc Espets at a call in the show. And I don't think that I was able to get a hold of him in time. I've got a little, let me see. Um, yeah, not not back with phone access in time to be able to call in. We might be able to have him in a, in a future show. I'm sure this problem is not going to go away anytime soon. Next week, I just want to have fun and talk to James. I don't want to pollute it with North Korea unless something really crazy happens. But what has happened with North Korea? Why is everybody in a stir. And and you could say, you know, should we be talking more about North Korea than we should be talking about the CNN thing? And and I would I would say no because of this whole culture of censorship issue, the issue of, you know, what is happening to rational discourse in our society and the importance 
of rational discourse if we think we want to change the culture. So if someone like me, I don't have much of an audience at this point, but maybe I'll get more of an audience at some point. And who knows, I could get better at making these memes and one of them could go viral. And then, heaven forbid, Donald Trump could retweet one of my memes because sometimes the people that I would be criticizing might be the people that he wants to criticize too. I mean, you know, I might want to be careful not to make a meme that Donald Trump would want to tweet out there just because I know he tweets in inappropriate ways, right? You know, it's this idea you're not going to develop the nuclear weapon and hand it over to a tyrannical dictator. Um, so maybe I, I, you know, I want to be careful in the memes that I create, but you never know. You get this audience and then CNN comes after you or some other news outlet is going to come after you and, and start making your life bad. And that does have a chilling effect. Those of us who are out there trying to promote better ideas, better ways of thinking about things in the world, maybe sometimes we have solutions to particular problems, like I have my privacy thing about what should be done in the law there. We want to put that out in the world. And the fact that there are now people in mainstream established journalistic outlets like CNN, people who are disposed to expose your identity because you put things out there with which they disagree that they don't like that they find offensive that is unacceptable in a culture that is built on dealing with one another by reason and not by force so i think it's it's worth all the discussion north korea you know we don't even know what sort of president we have in terms of dealing with the threat but let's go ahead and look what is going on i've got northkoreanews.org article shared out there by Jean-Luca says that they successfully launched an intercontinental ballistic missile on Tuesday morning. At least that's what the anchor of the North Korean state run broadcaster announced. Uh, They have a name for it that I can't really pronounce properly. Hwasong, I guess 14. It flew 933 kilometers at a maximum altitude of 2802 kilometers for 39 minutes lofted trajectory at nine local time, et cetera, et cetera. It fell into a targeted point in the Sea of Japan. They say the test fire was conducted at the highest angle and did not have any negative impact on the safety of neighboring countries. You know, this is, that statement sounds similar to the statement from CNN, right? You know, we didn't release the identity of this guy. Um, yeah, you know, we, we shot our intercontinental ballistic missile in a way that didn't threaten neighboring countries. We haven't used force against you yet, but we might, right? So if you go over to New York Times, all sorts of stuff on the front page. I chose just one that you can go ahead and worry your mind over. Headline, in North Korea, surgical strike could spin into worst kind of fighting. Standoff over North Korea's nuclear program has long been shaped by the view that the United States has no viable military option to destroy it. And Jean-Luc talked about that on the show when I interviewed him a while ago. He had said, and I've heard it before, if we try to do anything, South Korea, who is an ally and a good country, could be destroyed, suffer something really terrible. 
Any attempt to do so, many say, I'm reading from the article again, any attempt to do so would provoke a brutal counterattack against South Korea too bloody and damaging to risk. That remains a major constraint on the Trump administration's response, even as North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un approaches his goal of a nuclear arsenal capable of striking the United States. On Tuesday, the North appeared to cross a new threshold, testing a weapon that it described as an ICBM that analysts said could potentially hit Alaska. Over the years, as it does for potential crises around the world, the Pentagon has drafted and refined multiple war plans, including an enormous retaliatory invasion and limited preemptive attacks, and it holds annual military exercises with South Korea forces based on them. But the military options are more grim than ever. So this is scary stuff, right? Because right now, all of our military is in the throes of I don't want to say throws, but they're in the grip of just war theory. And just war theory would say, insofar as there is a threat to South Korea, even if it means that we're going to be struck with some nuclear weapon, we're not going to do anything insofar as our doing something is almost certainly going to have a negative effect on South Korea. It's it's a mess. And then the other thing that I've seen discussed out there, mostly on Twitter, I was I was seeing this a bunch of sanctions, a call for a lot of sanctions against North Korea, you know, cut off of aid and all this kind of stuff. And then what happens, at least I, I recall that Jean-Luc was tweeting that he believes if you did cut off aid, then you'd have a whole bunch of refugees come here right away and that maybe that would be bad. I don't know that North Korean refugees would be the worst people in the world though, right? So if you think you can handle this in some sort of a sanctions-oriented way, but it looks like they're fairly close to achieving something that could do damage to people in Alaska, those of us who are over here on the left coast in California. It's a horrible mess. I don't know if anybody wants to call in with their own prediction, but this is something that we're watching and we're worried about because we don't know how someone like Trump is going to handle it. And we don't even know if there was someone halfway decent in there, how well they would handle it, right? Um, Okay, so I think enough. I think enough on North Korea for now. We're going to be watching it in coming days. Maybe later uh, in July, maybe I could get Jean-Luc back on the show and we can talk about where he thinks things are going. And has Donald Trump actually managed to hire somebody in his administration who knows real things about this mess and, and how to handle it? Next, on the program notes. Again, go to the program notes, don'tletitgo.com, if you want to see all the things I'm talking about. And Again, you're welcome to call in as well if you have a comment on any of them, 760-888-5817. But the next thing I want to talk about is related. I I probably should have grouped it with the rational discourse concerns of the CNN kerfuffle. How the left lost its mind how the left lost lost its mind. So again, it's all continuing on the how far we've come theme. This is a great article from The Atlantic. It's actually not one of their longer pieces. Sometimes you think, oh gosh, I'm in for a real reading project here, but it's it's actually not a super long piece. I think Greg Salmeri and a number of other people on Facebook for spreading it around. The essence of this 
is that as bad as the right wing has been about perpetuating fake news and having all sorts of, you know, sort of um, inflammatory rhetoric that's being put out there and, and, you know, it's masquerading as actual argument and rational discourse. As bad as things have been on the right, it's starting to get bad on the left as well. And at least for the author of this piece, McKay Coppins, um, I don't know if McKay, I think McKay is a female name. I'm not sure uh, that she, you know, she would say that, um, you know, it's not as bad on the left. It, it's not yet as bad on the left, but warning that it could be as bad as that. Um, and the original story that they talk about is that they actually got to the point where a democratic Senator, a democratic Senator repeated a falsehood that had originated with just some sort of rumor mill out there on the internet and actually repeated it during an interview, ironically with CNN. This is what he said. He said that a grand jury had been impaneled in New York to investigate the Trump campaign's alleged collusion with Russia. Only problem. It wasn't true. So the, you know, one of, part of CNN's coverage of this original wrong that we talked about earlier. Precise origins of the rumor, they say, are difficult to pin down, but it had been been ricocheting around social media for days before this interview. The story had no reliable sourcing, not a single credible news outlet touched it, but it had been fervently championed by something called the Palmer Report, a liberal blog known for peddling conspiracy theories also by anti-Trump Twitter crusaders, someone named Louis Mensch. Soon enough, prominent people with blue check marks by their names. You know, if you go out on Twitter, if you have a blue check mark by your name, that's some sort of status symbol because you have been popular enough on Twitter. You have enough followers such that they want to verify your identity, that it's really you, your account that people are following. You know, so Robert Downey Jr. or something, right? Um, but yeah, so what are these people with the blue check marks doing? You know, these, these public figures who are out there continuing to perpetuate this rumor, they say, if this is true, it would be a really big thing. And, you know, when I read this in this article, it made me question because a couple times I have said something like that. I said, I would share a story and I'd say, well, I don't know if this is true, But if it is, boy, that would be a big deal. Maybe we should all hold off and never even do those, right? It sounds like a disclaimer, but what this article is telling you is that even if you do that and and you've got that disclaimer in there that you are helping to perpetuate the lies because somebody else is going to say, oh, well, hmm, that means maybe there's something to it. It's worth even talking about, right? It's not just arbitrary, but in fact, apparently it is. This was completely arbitrary. And it, like telephone style, that game telephone when you were a kid, just got spread around and spread around and spread around. They say by May 11th, the story had migrated from the bowels of the Internet to the mouth of a United States senator. So you've got a United States senator, a Democrat, going on a major news network, just spouting gibberish, arbitrary nonsense. Why? Because of the sort of you know, kind of liberal social media 
put together with some of the blogs and podcasts and everything else. Marky's office apparently apologized for spreading the unsubstantiated story. And after that, there was a mild flurry of articles warning of, quote, fake news aimed at the left. And then everyone just moved on. But um, the episode, as the author writes here, Coppins, basically tells you that there is an underexamined phenomenon here in American politics. It's that what you want to do is look at this, what they call ecosystem, media ecosystem, and look at its influence, right? Uh, what Coppin says is President Donald Trump, the fact that we have President Donald Trump shows you the danger of the influence of this sort of ecosystem. And you know, I believe again, she, I should have checked the, the name of the author beforehand. If you guys can tell me whether this is a male or female, so I don't keep botching it, that would be wonderful, but I feel bad. Um, Coppins is, is saying, look, we might end up with something like this on the right as well. We might end up, I mean, excuse me, on the left as well. We might end up with the equivalent of Donald Trump on the left, and wouldn't that be horrible? And she talks about, she, I'm going to keep saying she, as my default pronoun here, um, the topography, as she describes it, of the left's media landscape. Twitter conspiracists, it starts out with, so there's all sorts of conspiracies that are going out there, the Russia scandal. Um, they say it's acceptable in this world of Twitter conspiracists to allege that hundreds of American politicians, journalists, and government officials are actually secret Russian agents. Also, that Andrew Breitbart was murdered by Vladimir Putin. These are all just rumors that go around amongst these Twitter conspiracists. Next element of this ecosystem on the left, hyperpartisan Facebook pages and the pages that they call out occupy Democrats. And then I guess there's other ones, another one called addicting info. And then there's another one called the other 98%. And Buzzfeed, I guess, did an analysis of the posts on these pages, these very, very popular pages. Occupy Democrat has millions of fans. So that means that all these memes and videos and everything just gets, you know, proliferated. They go viral out there. They say 20%, nearly 20% of the stories posted by these three extremely popular liberal Facebook pages were either partly or mostly false. So it's this danger of the perpetuating the false information. This happened in the right and at least, you know, Coppins here is saying that this is why we have Donald Trump. And so this could also happen on the left. The left, I guess, was the last bastion of truth-loving, rational discourse. And now it also is descending into this hellish state where it's um, perpetuating falsehoods. Chris in the chat room says, yeah, I miss Andrew Breitbart's moxie. I do as well. I got to meet him one time only at an event in Los Angeles and actually yeah, a couple times. I think I saw him at two different things one time, but yeah, he, he was excellent. I mean, I can only imagine the wonderful content that he could contribute to the discussion today and what he would have to say, you know, about all of this. 
imagine him rolling in his grave when he sees media out there saying, you know, left or right. And he would he'd call it out either way. He'd say, you know, it's ridiculous to say that I was murdered by Putin. Um, then there's blogs and message boards as well, besides these hyper-partisan Facebook pages. Early Bush years, they had the Daily Cause, and they crusaded against an oppressive and war-crazed administration, according to them. Now they have the Palmer Report that was mentioned earlier in this piece. They say this is the publication of record for the anti-Trump conspiracy nuts who don't care about the credibility of the record. Another one called Share Blue. They're calling it the Breitbart of the left. And Patrobiotics, home to mentions Russia-related rumor-mongering. Old school platforms, Reddit and Daily Cause, continue to host the freewheeling forums that attract the kind of occasionally enlightening, occasionally deranged conversations that thrive there. And the HuffPost contributor platform, because it's unvetted, is apparently another source of problems. And then there's podcasts as well. They say the constellation of popular podcasts that has emerged on the left serves many of the same functions that right-wing talk radio hosts serve for their audiences mix of commentary, entertainment, partisan catharsis, a safe space to process the daily onslaught of bad news. Hosts are not household names, but to the listeners, they are superstars. Successful podcasts are able to sell out theaters for live shows, okay, et cetera. Um, Now, because they are walled off from the web and they're unplugged from social media a lot of times, Even irresponsible podcasts are not innately integral to the spread of the sketchy information, but some of these ones, um, they are careful with their evidence and claims. They're going to actually debunk the conspiracy theories, Uh, but what they offer usually they say here is the sense of community. So I guess the the podcasts, according to... um, you know, the author here, Coppins, the, the podcasts are not as bad as some of these other things, but they don't have as much effect. And then finally, the VIP validators. There's the, they say one of the signs of the potential power in this universe is the regularity with which some stories that originate end up reaching public figures with real influence and massive followings. So all you have to do is get somebody with a massive following to retweet something false with a bit of nonsense and a lot of damage is already done. Talk about, um, Oh, when Chaffetz announced he would resign his house seat, the Palmer report published an anonymously sourced bombshell claiming that the FBI had discovered that the Congressman was being blackmailed by the Kremlin characteristic of the site's well-worn shtick, but that didn't stop Ned price a former special assistant to President Obama, from credulously passing it along on Twitter. And this is what he says. Interesting if single-sourced article from a few days ago, he wrote. Now, he said single-sourced. He should have said single-anonymously sourced, right? Because sometimes the anonymous sources are ones that if you hear it's an anonymous source, then you'll take it with a grain of salt, so to speak. And then another senior advisor to Obama chimed in on the Internet, right? And then suddenly it goes. Coppins ends the piece saying, when journalists were pressing these two, these two VIPs, as to why they were sharing a story from a website with a spotty track record, 
Price's response was telling. The quote from, again, this is someone who was a former special assistant to Barack Obama. Why is he spreading stuff of dubious provenance, right, out on the Internet? It comes from this blog that has a spotty track record. Why is he spreading it? And he says, quote, every once in a blue moon, the tin hat can fit. So there's a conspiracy out there. Every once in a blue moon, it's right. So I'll just keep spreading all the wrong ones, and then one of them is eventually going to be right. That's their thinking. And that's really dangerous. So it's not just in the right wing. It's also now increasingly on the left. And as we've talked about earlier, the other thing that we're seeing on the left is the eagerness to resort to threats as a way to try to shut down people who are saying things that offend you. And I've, like I said, I experienced it myself recently on Twitter when I said I wouldn't shake Jimmy Carter's hand. I got the vicious, vicious attacks. And I've, you know, documented that on an earlier show. You can check out the blog and, and go back to that. So how far we've come. Rational discourse, the state of it in this country has descended to a large extent. What's the solution again? Keep exposing it. You know, kudos to The Atlantic for publishing this piece. They published a lot of really excellent work. But yeah, just keep exposing it. Just keep yourself practicing the principles of, of proper discourse. Don't spread the lies, certainly. Try to do your best. I get caught every so often, you know, somebody posts something and it's in my Facebook feed and I share it before I check the date, for example. And the thing that happens a lot with this is uh, the thing, the sort of thing with which this happens a lot is climate change articles. So someone will say, oh, you know, this shows that the climate change alarmists were lying about so-and-so. And it looks like it's some brand new exposing of data fudging by you know the climate change alarmists and you share it and then you realize it's from 2011 or something like that it's like yeah they probably are still lying today but it would be nice if you're sharing something today that you either say that it was from 2011 and so people don't take it as oh my god that was going on in 2011 it's still going on yeah so try try to be part of the the solution, not the problem. Uh, people in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio are doing a little brainstorming about how to help with the North Korea situation. Maybe what we're going to want to do is, is take that up in a future show if we can get Sean Luca back on again to talk about what should be done there. He had a plan that he discussed when I interviewed him about how you could take out the current leadership because the current leadership is just not, you know, Kim Jong-un. It's, it's, there's this whole sort of semi-royalty and stuff that has more power and you can unseat them apparently and have influence with them as well. So there's, there's things that maybe could be done and there's some people in the know who have a plan. And the question is, will the plan be acceptable to Trump? Will Trump even ever hear about the plan? Does he have the right people surrounding him to talk to him about this? Who knows? I've got a few more stories. I've got a couple of people who have been 
on the switchboard but haven't pressed the one key. If you want to say anything, because the show is going to be over in, what, seven minutes or something, go ahead and hit one. <laughs> Chris says that Tammy Bruce calls Kim fat boy. Yeah, I don't have a problem with ridiculing people who are just horrible bullies who have shown that they have absolutely no intellectual resources and that they are willing to resort to force to get their way. Let's ridicule those people. That sounds awesome. But otherwise, I'm I'm not as much of a ridiculer as, as everybody else. Maybe I should learn some more. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Oh, hi. I mean, this is Pratik. This is who? Pratik. Oh, Pratik. Okay, great. I didn't hear you. There was a little bit of a glitch in there. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Uh, I had a question. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to this uh, talk by Ayn Rand, uh, The Nation's Unity, and in the talk she she said one thing. Um, she said there are no little people in America, and um, and you know I mean looking around today it feels very opposite of that. Like you know you hear little people this, little people that, like you know disabled and whatnot. Um, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on what do you think she meant by when she said that there are no little people in America. Can you talk about it? I have a sense of it, but I want to hear it from you. I mean, of the idea that the American sense of life would include that we all have individual dignity and we think, you know, we each think of our own lives, the, you know, from the, um, the Westerner, right? The poem, the, the world began when I was born, right? Um, that, you yourself you are worthy of creating your own happiness and and that each individual is important the the other thing that she talks about in um you know in the essay don't let it go is that in relation to people like trump or anybody else we see them you know if we respect them i don't have so much respect for trump but we see these politicians and everybody as accomplished but generally equal with us we don't believe that in order to have any sort of status in the world that you have to have you know some sort of a title or anything else and we feel that we can engage in in discourse and that we can criticize our politicians our you know public figures actors actresses and stuff that we we feel like we're on on a plane with them that's part of the american sense of life that's what it should be but you're saying that you get the sense that now there is sort of strata in society, classes and stuff, and that there's the little people and the and the famous people and all that. Yeah, sort of. That people just can't help themselves, or rather, they cannot. Um, basically, they cannot be independent. They have to be helped, and they are. Oh, okay, so so you're talking you're talking more about the idea of paternalism and that paternalism is justified, and. You know, we need to always, quote, help the little people. Certainly even Trump has that, right? And so when you've got that in a Republican president, it's pretty sad. The Republicans have always been the party of individual responsibility is is the way that they talk about it a lot. Um, This is something, you know, but what I do think that she meant, yes, is that each person has dignity, has the capability to make what he wants of his life. And that in general in society, that we don't see people as as in sort of strata. She also talks in the essay about um, 
you know, everybody can shop, whether you're a celebrity or not, you can go to Target or Walmart or whatever, you know, whereas in European countries or maybe in other countries around the world, certain people don't shop in certain stores. It's a sense of, you know, what class do you belong to and stuff like that. So I think it's that kind of thing that she, she meant as well. You know, again, I'm drawing on my knowledge of the, the essay from don't let it go. So that's the best I've got off the top of my head, but, but I thank you for calling. And um, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and just kind of, I'll have that now in my subconscious and I'll be aware of, things that I see out there in articles and in the culture that talk about that. I mean, you know, what's the state of the American sense of life? It's a complex evaluation to make, but it's something that we should always be aware of. What is the the state of that? Because we don't have the explicit philosophy reigning. We still have the American sense of life doing a lot of the work of, of helping us out here. Okay. So I'm out of time. Just about, if you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, there's a couple articles to look at. The Jones act is an old piece of legislation that is apparently doing still a lot of damage to shipping costs and availability and everything else. It's, it's destroying a, a big sector of our economy and should be repealed. So thanks Stuart for sending that. You can check out the Chris Christie outrage over the public beach stuff. I didn't get so interested in that. Apparently he was out there like in front of the governor's mansion, but he had shut down the public beaches. So people were outraged. I figure Chris Christie is enjoying the last bit of cafefe that he can before he's out of office and no longer a big shot. Right. Uh, Good news. Apple has put a college-level course out there for free that you can learn to code in in Swift, which is the language that a lot of applications are being written in. That's awesome. Kudos to Apple for actually making an investment that can help people, people who want to help themselves. And then finally, the most appealing thing to me on the front page, as I saw it on the New York Times website today, how to pull off rainbow hair and still look like an adult. I say of all the news we talked about today, that is the most fun that you can have, I guess. And a little bit of music to counter the doom and gloom of how far we've come. Okay, I'll talk to you guys next week, 3 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday. Take care.